What goes through your heart when you look at statistics that are so enormous, so huge? And uh, let me be super candid with you on how I respond. I look at that, and I feel overwhelmed. I look at that, and I think, you know what? Governments have tried to tackle these issues for decades. Billions and billions of dollars have been given to try and solve these kinds of problems around the world. And it seems like it just continues to get worse and worse and worse. And so I look at it, and my reaction isn't to be inspired or to be motivated or to say, oh, I can take care of that. It is much more to say, I don't know how in the world that's going to get fixed. And I certainly don't believe that I can really be a part of fixing that. Uh, I don't know if that's how you feel, but uh, I know that now that we live in sort of a 24-hour news cycle with cable TV that is telling us what's happening in every corner of the world all the time, we are getting more information about what plagues the world and what plagues the United States than we've ever, ever had before. It used to be the case that 50 years ago, you knew about some things that were going on, but unless you read it in a newspaper, unless it was like happening in your city or in your community, you weren't aware of all these things that were happening around the world as much. And now we are bombarded with that. And I know for me, I just start feeling overwhelmed. There's a, even there's a commercial that has been running on TV for probably a couple of years. And I think it's put out by PETA, and it is the picture of a bunch of animals that are not being uh, adopted or being taken care of or being abused. And so I don't know how they did it. They got dogs like to cry on the, the commercial. And I'm just telling you, and please don't call PETA on me, but when that commercial comes on, I like turn it off. I just don't, I, just another thing. I just can't handle another thing that basically I suck at and I can't fix. And so I want us to talk a little bit about how, as Christians, we are to handle the fact that we live in a world that is broken. There is so much need and so much concern and so, much, so many people hurting beyond our wildest dreams. What are we to do with that? Because if your response is like mine, to be overwhelmed... That, I'll just tell you, is not the right response. That is not how we need to respond. We're in this series called Boldly, and I'm just telling you, I don't think that the early church would look at problems around them and just be overwhelmed and say, we're not going to handle it. In fact, we're going to look at a story today where that was not how the early church handled it. They leaned in boldly. But I'm telling you, that is my natural response. And I, if that's your natural response, I'm going to give you a chance to just get that out and, and to turn your mind around. So I want you to say on three, I will not be overwhelmed, okay? On three, one, two, three. I will not be overwhelmed. Okay, now we're gonna say it with a little bit of passion, all right? One, two, three. I will not be overwhelmed because bold believers are not overwhelmed with that even though we recognize that we might not be able to fix it. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter six and we're continuing on in our study uh, in the early church, as we look at the early church being bold. And we see a problem come up at the beginning of chapter 6 that 
it's interesting and it's kind of unique. Up to this point, the apostles have taken care of all of the problems of the church. Pretty much if you look at the first five chapters, everything that happens, the apostles, Peter and John and the guys, are in charge. And they're, they're mowing problems down, figuring things out, making everything work. And so in chapter 6 now, the church is uh, several weeks old, maybe a few months, you know, probably less than a year old. It has grown rapidly. 20,000 people about are in the church at this point. It's in Jerusalem. And they finally hit a problem that is overwhelming. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What was happening here is that Within Judaism, there were two divisions. There was actually more, but there were two large ones in Jerusalem at this time. The Hellenistic Jews, they were the Jews that generally came from around the world and would congregate at Jerusalem. And as you know, at the day of Pentecost, when the church launched, a lot of people from around the world, a lot of Jews from around the world, were in Jerusalem at the time, and they became Christians, and so they didn't go home. Because to go home meant to not be able to hear anything about Jesus. So they just stayed. So there was a lot of Hellenistic Jews living in Jerusalem. They did not have the same kind of means as the Hebraic Jews, which were the Jews that pretty much lived in Jerusalem. Uh, Hebraic, guess what language they spoke? They spoke Hebrew. And so they considered themselves sort of the purebred Jews. And their thought was the Hellenistic Jews are not as purebred as us. Now, this was a cultural problem that was outside of the church. It was just in the Jewish community. But because primarily Jews were becoming Christians, they brought it into the church. And now there is this issue in the church that we've got a whole division of, of widows, uh, the Hellenistic uh, widows, that are not being taken care of in a fair way. And this really is threatening to destroy the church. And there are probably thousands of people that are involved in this kind of discussion. There's hatred and bitterness. There's a lot of tension because there's racial issues here. And there's certainly uh, social issues here. And so there's all this sort of wrangling that's going on. And it is not the way the church should be. That's what the apostles look at. This is not the way it should be. But they do such an interesting thing. If you look in verse 2, it says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Here's what they do. And this is so counterintuitive to what I would do if I was a leader in a church and a huge problem came up, maybe a problem that would threaten the very existence of the church. I'll tell you what I would do. Whether I was good at it or not, whether I had capacity for it or not, I would take care of it. I would lean in. I'd say, this is up to me. And I would even neglect other things that God has made me better at. I would neglect, you know, preaching the word, praying, certain leadership things. i just neglect that because I'd go, well, this is the problem. I've got to take care of this. They did an incredibly wise thing and really an incredibly bold thing. Instead of rolling up their sleeves and saying, I need to take care of this, they said, you know what? We have certain things that we've got to do. We are the only ones that walked with Jesus. We are the ones that need to tell you about Jesus and what he taught. And we are commissioned to pray, and we're going to pray. That leaves a huge opening for who's going to take care of this problem, but it's not going to be us. It needs to be taken care of, 
but it's not going to be us. And so in verses 3 and 4, they come up with their solution. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and, they, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so they look and they say, we can't possibly take care of this. We're going to expand the team. <clears throat> We're going to bring more people onto the team. We want you to select the people that will come on. And there was two attributes they had to have. What was it? The first one was they needed to be? All right, you're pretty close. Let's, you had the right answer. You're just not saying it with confidence. The first one, right in the word there, they have to be full of the Spirit. And secondly, they have to be wise. Okay, so those are the two attributes. You know, the Spirit works in them. They have discernment and wisdom. They're the ones we're going to put in charge of this. It's so interesting. If you look at the list of names of people that are selected, many of which cannot be pronounced, which is why I'm not reading it to you, uh, they are all Hellenistic names. The apostles look at them and they go, you know who will take care of this? The Hellenistic Jews. If we put them in charge, they'll take care. They'll make sure their widows are taken care of. So they do a very wise thing. These actually become great leaders in the church, and a couple of them are featured prominently in the rest of the book of Acts. And so they make this selection, and all of a sudden the leadership team becomes much larger. And we have the great concluding statement in verse 7. So the word of God spread... The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so you have this amazing statement about this solution. And I just want, you know, just picture in your mind, if the apostles had said, we're going to take care of this. This is such a huge problem. We've got to take care of it. So all of a sudden, they don't have time to be teaching all over the place. They don't have time for prayer and things like that. Just imagine how the church would have slowly started to die had they not realized the principle, the first principle that I want us to just sort of grab onto here, which is you can't do for everyone. That's what they realized. We can't do for everyone. We cannot solve every problem hands-on. We cannot step into every situation and be the hero. We are not so big and mighty that no matter what's happening, where it's happening, how much of a challenge it is, we're going to lean in because that's what we should do. They look at it and they go, that's a fool's game. There are so many more problems. Way before I can solve the problems, my energy is going to run out. My, you know, my strategy is going to run out. My ingenuity is going to run out. There's just no way that I can do it. And here's the first thing. If you are committed to not being overwhelmed, are you committed to that? All right, on three, we're going to say, I will not be overwhelmed. I just want to make sure we're committed to that. One, two, three. I will not be overwhelmed. All right, if you're committed to that, if you're serious, this principle is so key. You can't do for everyone. You cannot fix every problem. You cannot look at a TV set and say, I'm going to take care of all the pets in the United States because I feel so badly about those dogs that cry on TV. I'm just going to take care of that. You cannot do that. It is the first step. You are not God. You are not God. But here's the problem we run into. We Churches are full of people. Well, that's an interesting thing. Thank you. <laughs> Churches are full of people, and with that thought, I want us to continue to move on here. All right, so with that thought in mind, 
Here's the thing that we tend to do, though. We tend to say, if I can't do for everyone, I won't do for anyone. And you know, it's kind of a principle that was probably drummed into us when we were growing up, is that we would go to maybe a parent, and we had siblings, and we'd say, you know, mom and dad, can I stay up late because this show's on, and you know how much I love this show, and I really want to stay up for the show. And mom and dad looked at you with sympathy in their eyes, and they said, I cannot let you stay up, because if I let you stay up, I'm going to have to let everyone stay up. And to that I'd respond, no you don't. That, that's not written, there's not like any rule that's written in the cosmos that says that if you make an exception for me, you've got to make a, an exception for all my siblings. But you know what, that always won out. That always won out. Do you remember you'd, you'd want to chew gum in your classrooms at school, and you'd be, you know, you'd like have gum. And I don't know if this is the rationale that your teacher used, but in my day, this is what they used. I'd come in chewing gum, and they'd say, you need to spit that out. And I'd say, well, why, why can't I have it? Because if I let you chew gum, I need to let everyone chew gum. And I'd say, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't need to let everybody chew gum. I can chew gum, you know? But we were sort of driven into our mind that it's not fair if we can't do something for everyone, we really shouldn't do something for anyone. But let me make this super clear. Life isn't fair. Life isn't fair. You know what? People aren't fair. Your mom and your dad, they weren't fair. Even if you look at the Bible, it seems in many places God's not fair. Life is not fair. And this thought to say, if I can't do for everyone, I won't do for anyone, I'm telling you it is a lie from Satan. Because with that mentality, nothing ever gets done. So if we're not going to be overwhelmed, we need to realize we can't do for everyone, but we still need to do for someone. For someone, we need to do it. Now turn over to Galatians chapter 6, and I want to give you one other principle that we're going to look at today. Just because you can't do for everyone, that doesn't mean that you don't do for one. And in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, 9 and 10, it says these words. Um, in fact, it's up here. Let's read this together. It says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Here is what Paul is teaching us here. First, he says, let's not become weary. All right, on three. One, two, three. Let's not become weary. All right, now, why do we become weary? Because we're trying to do for everyone. Well, when you try to do for everyone, you're going to become weary. There's no way that you can do it. You've got to make a decision. I can't do for everyone, and I'm not going to get to the point of being weary. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at, it says here, the proper time, we're going to look at that in a second. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not do what? If we don't give up. So we can't look and say, well, I'm overwhelmed. If I can't do for everyone, I'm not going to do for anyone. I'm just going to be overwhelmed, and I'm going to back off. And we all know that to be bold, we cannot be overwhelmed. All right? We know that. So you can't move in that direction. And what it's saying here is if you don't give up, something good is going to happen at the right time. Then there is this really incredible statement that is made. Therefore, as we have opportunity, now we've taught on this word opportunity, and I'm not going to take a ton of time, 
But there is a Greek word here for this specific word. It is the word kairos. Do you remember kairos, your favorite word, your favorite Greek word? Okay, we're going to say kairos on three. To say it properly, you really have to get the guttural kairos. So you're going to say it, and then you're going to wipe your neighbor's head off in front of you. Okay, so we're going to say kairos on three. One, two, three, kairos. Here's what kairos means. Kairos means that God has selected a certain amount of opportunities that have been specifically customized, made for you. For you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you. Specifically for you, God has ordained a certain amount of opportunities. They are not my opportunities. They are not the world's opportunities. They are your opportunities. That's what that word means. There are a certain specific amount that he's orchestrated that are coming your way. And what he's saying here is, when that opportunity comes, somebody who loves God, somebody who is seeking to do what God wants him or her to do, is going to seize Kairos, and they're going to do for that one. For that one. Because God says, that's the one that has your name on it. That's the one I orchestrated for you. That's the person that you're going to be able to help. That's the situation you're going to be able to fix. You have been singled out by God for this very purpose. It is such a beautiful idea. And what it does, here's, this is so cool. What it does is it takes the pressure off. You don't have to feel guilty about the opportunities you don't take that aren't for you. You don't have to look at that and go, oh my gosh, there's so much, and I'm just doing my piddly little part. Because you know what God's saying? If everybody does their piddly little part, an awful lot gets done, right? If everybody does it, an awful lot gets done. So here's the second principle that we want to live with. If the first principle is you can't do for everyone, but you still got to do for someone, the second principle is do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish everyone could have solved or fixed or, you know, plugged back together or glued back into place, whatever it is. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone, but you just can't because you're limited, you're finite, you've only got your part. And here's the cool thing. If you'll do your part, God says, I'm happy with that. I'm happy if you take the opportunity that I gave you. Let me give you three things to think about when you're doing, when you're selecting your part. Here's the first one. It is better to go deep than to go wide. It's better to go deep than to go wide. It's better to focus on one person or one situation than to try and do several. Because being superficial, almost no problem can be solved in a superficial way. If you're talking about a marriage that's falling apart, if you're talking about a child that needs some help in school, if you're talking about you know, a foster kid that needs to be adopted, if you're talking about some homeless people, it's not going to be solved by just saying, you know what? I'll just, you know, I'll just do a whole bunch of things and just sort of put my finger in a bunch of dice. No, here's the idea. Go deep. Whatever you choose, say, I'm going to go in for the long haul. Here's the reason we don't do it, because it's messy. It's, I'm totally candid. It's the reason I don't do it. It's messy. 
but you want to go deep rather than wide. You want to go long-term rather than short-term because relationships take time. And just as Julie shared, relationships are what change lives. It isn't just solving the problem. It's becoming a friend. It's stepping in. It's giving part of your life to someone else. You want to go long-term and not short-term. And then finally, give time, not just money. Now, money is great. Money solves a lot of problems. Money is something that's precious to us. And so when we give it, we're loving on people. But time is precious to us. And in the United States, where we tend to have more money than other people around the world, we think writing a check is enough. Writing a check is not enough. It takes more than money. Our government proves it every single day of the year. They throw money at all kinds of problems that never get fixed because it's relationship. So it is time and money, not just money. But if you'll live by those three things, and in a second, Matt is going to come up and talk to us about this stuff. But as you think about your opportunities, we want to go uh, deep, not wide. We want to go long-term, not short-term. And along with our money, we want to give time. If you'll do those things for the opportunity God has given you, you are going to see amazing things take place. This last week, uh, Julie and I went out to dinner with uh, some friends of ours that we just met a year ago. As Julie started to work in the Resource Center, there was a guy named Fred that came down and started to volunteer. And he's from the Middle East. And he had come over a few years ago. And he was a white-collar, sort of high-income earner where he was from. And when he moved over here, he thought he'd be able to just transition into doing some kind of job here. But several years later, he still had not landed a job. And it was obvious, although Fred didn't say it, because he's a sweet guy and he just wouldn't point a finger. But it was obvious there was a lot of prejudice working against him as far as finding a job here. So he said, well, I'll volunteer my time in the Resource Center. And he literally would give 20, 30 hours a week in the Resource Center. Eventually, Julie hooked him up, and he got a job working in the cafe at the Irvine campus, way below, and this isn't to demean any kind of job, but he had been trained to do things that were beyond serving food at the cafe at Mariner's Church. But he did it. He did it joyfully. He was thankful for it, totally appreciated that Julie had sort of helped him with that, and we all became friends. Well, this last Tuesday, Fred invited us out to dinner. And it was a celebration because he just landed a job managing a restaurant in Fashion Island. He had gone just to start working there, and the guy started talking to him and said, I actually need a manager. How would you like to manage the job? He could not believe it. And when he took us out to dinner, he looked at Julie and me, and he said, this would not have happened without you. And that's why I'm celebrating with you today. This would not have happened without you. And I can tell you there are many more times I get this wrong rather than right, or Julie and I get it wrong. But when you get it right, it is such an amazing thing to know that God has used you to actually impact someone in a significant way to help them out in need. So we are going to have the, really the privilege of having Matt Altoff come up and talk to us. He, He's one of the primary leaders in our outreach ministry. And we, wanted, we invited him to come here just to share a little bit of the heart of what our outreach ministry focuses on. And as he comes up, uh, look at this video. This is sort of going to set up what he's going to talk about.
Churches are full of people. The broken, the lonely, the wanderers, the hopeful, the enthusiastic, the lost, the passionate, and the faithful. For many, this gathering represents the whole of their church experience. They'll listen attentively to a message, they'll sing a few songs, they'll be invited to pray, and then they'll return to their lives. But for some, questions will start bubbling to the surface of their faith. Is this the extent of what Jesus intended for his followers? Who is the church for? Why does the world need the church? And what is the church after all? Well, the church isn't the building where people attend weekly services. It's not a program, a list of rules, or a philosophy. The church isn't a political affiliation, a country club, or a holiday tradition. The church was never intended to be just an assembly of people wearing nice clothes and saying nice things. The church is all the followers of Jesus everywhere. The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. It's the combination of two words, ek, which means out, and kaleo, meaning called. Thus the church, the ekklesia, means the called out ones. In other words, the church, the collective body of all the followers of Jesus everywhere, is called out by someone for something, for a purpose. The beginning of the book of Acts has Jesus calling his disciples to a task, bringing something called the gospel, the good news, to all the world. And this gospel would go out to all the outsiders, the forgotten, the abandoned, and the excluded. And they, those outsiders, would see and receive that good news as actually good. When Jesus talked about the gospel, it was always in conjunction with something else, something called the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, God's purposes are made apparent. There's justice and righteousness. There's hope for the poor and for the oppressed. And under the kingdom of God, mercy and forgiveness take precedence over bitterness and resentment. Now, people previously deemed to be far from God are brought into his family, adopted as his sons and daughters. And the fullness of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is not merely expressed as a way for people to escape an evil world when they die. Rather, the good news of God's kingdom is about the announcement of God's eternity, moving into the present world and carrying on into the life to come. The people who belong to Jesus join him in his worldwide restoration project. And the called out ones, the church, are committed to advancing this good news of God's kingdom into the world. Not as a means of helping people avoid the world, but rather to see God's kingdom life being made real here and now. The whole church with the power of the whole gospel for the whole world. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors down at uh, in Outreach Ministries. But isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting? And, and I look at that the video, and, uh, and so I want to talk to you about that and kind of the response of that video. Um, number one is it's simple and it's profound. And for me, sometimes I, I wrestle with the idea as I've grown up in the church culture of going, what truly is the church? What is my response as a follower of Jesus? And so you look at that video, and it just it gives you this big picture of who God is. He's this amazing God that just didn't save us just so that we could have salvation. But yet he wants to use us to be a part of that plan and part of that story. And that's the exciting thing for me, is that he wants to use our stories and my story and your story. And not only does he want to use us in our brokenness and our sin and our messed up lives, but our passions and our gifts, he says, I want to use all of you to be a part of restoring the planet. Isn't that exciting? Is that exciting, guys? Yeah, there you go. And that's, that's what the gospel is. 
And, and so I think so many times as I looked at um, the church and what the church is about, is sometimes the church is about just showing up on Sundays or just showing up in your Bible study or wanting to be safe or comfortable. And that's not at all what Jesus intended the church to be. He intended the church to be somebody that goes in our messiness. We go out into the world and we want to love like he loved. That's what this is about. You know, oftentimes I ask this question. I said, you know, what does it truly mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And this is something that God has really been stirring in me over the last couple of years. What does it truly look like? Because we get to see missionaries and they go and they go to the far parts of the world and they serve and they're all in and they're, they're, that's great. And we read uh, those that are persecuted in the church and they, and they go out and they're persecuted and they're all in. And you read in scripture and you see the disciples and you see them and they go, you know what, they were willing to die uh, for their faith. And I started to wrestle with for me, what does it truly mean to be all in? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I have this rooted group. How many of you guys are in rooted? Yeah? I, I, this, is, this, this is several times I've gotten to lead this group or lead different groups in, uh, through rooted. And this group is different. This is a group uh, where everybody in the group has been in the, ch- in the church for less than two months. There's one guy in the first night of, uh, of the rooted group. He shows up, and I say, hey, we're meeting up here over in this place. He goes, uh, I've never been here before. And so here's this group of people. And, and what's, what's crazy is this is the last uh, place that I expected God to do something in my life through this group. Is as I wrestled with their stories, as they are searching, as they are uh, in their brokenness, in their addictions, and just the, just the messiness of life, I have seen this group respond and truly be the church to each other. And we sat down and we said, hey, we get to serve. And so we laid out all these different serve opportunities. And I said, hey, we're going to pick which day we're going to serve. And their response was, hey, can, can we do all of them? Do we have to only do one? And here's this group of people that is, is they, they haven't been in the church that long. And yet they're going, hey, we want to be this. We want to be this kind of people. This is who Jesus says we are. We want to do this. And so I'm wrestling with, you know, truly, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And so you have this bracelet. You guys see this? How many of you guys are wearing these bracelets? Yeah. And for me, what this means is who do I want to be? Who is God calling me to be? What kind of Christian and what kind of follower of Jesus Christ do I want to be? And so as I look at that bracelet and go, this is what it means. It means to love like Jesus did. It means that I am sent out, that I have to go out. And, and so I, this bracelet is not just something that I put on that's neat, it's cute, and it, it fits my outfit and all this kind of stuff. It, it's meant to be a statement of going, I, I need to embrace this is who God wants me to be. And so, you know, as a church, this has been our story over the last 25 years. Uh, you guys are not, it's not just about Huntington Beach. You guys are part of a much bigger story of us as a church in the last 25 years wrestling with what does it mean to be a church and go out and be the church. And 25 years ago, you know, Lori Bishore, uh, they sat down and they started to look at, okay, what does the scriptures say about what it means to be uh, followers of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a body that, that is a church in a community? And as they studied God's word, they realized that this is who God is. He is a father to the fatherless. He is a defender of orphans and widows. He has a heart for those that are broken and lost and in poverty. And so we embraced, hey, this is who we want to be as a church. And we didn't have everything figured out. We didn't have all the strategies figured out. We didn't have all the answers. We just said, we want to go out and we want to be the church. And so what's exciting for me, and I'm super passionate. It doesn't look like I'm passionate. I'm German, so I have this one look. It's like the same one for angry as happy. You know, you can ask my wife. But I'm excited for you guys because this is who you guys get to be in Huntington Beach. 
What kind of church are you going to be? What kind of followers of Jesus Christ are you going to be? Are you going to be a church that embraces the fullness of the gospel and says, we're going to go out and we're going to love people? And it's not some new strategy that we came up with in outreach. This is literally who Jesus was. And if you read in the scriptures and you start to look at who Jesus was, the very first thing that Jesus did is he did one simple thing. And he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to, he didn't have to do this one simple thing. He said, I'm going to show up. And I'm going to come. And I'm going to be part of people's lives. And so he showed up. And when he showed up, he showed up with this heart that was the servant's heart. And he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life for those in need. And so this is who Jesus was. You saw that he had compassion. You saw that he loved the broken. He was a person that radically shifted culture and said, I'm going to touch those that are untouchable. I'm going to spend time with the lepers. I'm going to spend time with the prostitutes. I'm going to spend time with these kinds of people. And that's who Jesus was. And one of the most exciting things for me um, in outreach ministries is I get to be a part of people discovering what it means for them just to show up. And I want to tell you guys a couple stories. There's a story of a boy named Christian, and he's nine years old. He's two years older than my son. And it makes me emotional because I go, I can't believe where he's at in his faith. And I can't believe that a nine-year-old boy is teaching me what it means to just show up. And so here's this boy, Christian, that wrestles with, what do I have to give as a nine-year-old boy? How, how can I make a difference in the world? He loves Legos. <laughs> and he says, what if I take my Legos and I do devotions and teachings for kids in ministry? And so he goes out and he just shows up. He says, I, I'm using what I have to go out and be the church. Well, there's a lady named Marilyn. She's 75 years old. She lives in a retirement community in Laguna Woods. And she comes to me and she calls me up and she says, hey, I got an idea of how I can just show up. And I go, okay, awesome. Let's, let's meet. Let's get together in the cafe. And so she shows up and she shows up with a picnic basket. It's got the red checkered blanket outside. You know, it's kind of, you're like, okay, what's going on? What's this lady about? And she doesn't tell me her idea. And she sits down and she goes, I have an idea. The elderly are some of the most lost and forgotten in my community, in my neighborhood. And I just want to love on them. And I'm like, awesome. And she pulls out this basket and she's got tea and she's got muffins. And she goes, I, I want to do this ministry. And I, and I thought of a name for it, Sunshine Tea and Muffins. And I just want to go love those that are isolated and forgotten and broken. She had an idea and she just showed up. And as I wrestle with this question for me, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It means that I have to show up. And it means that I have to have his heart as I show up. And I get to be used by God in an incredible way. You know, my story is I come, uh, I'm, I'm divorced. And uh, three years ago, went through just a horrible situation of brokenness and pain um, that I had to, to had wrestle with. And that's part of my story. And in that, one of the most incredible things is God uses that brokenness and pain. And who are the kinds of people you think he brings into my life? People that have all gone through those kinds of things. And I get random people that call me from Facebook and Twitter and all different kinds of things and say, hey, I'm in the same situation. I just need somebody to talk to. And I didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for God to use my story in that way. But he does. And so I'm excited as I look at this room and go, each one of you guys is a story. Each one of you guys is not only just a story that you've put together, but a story that God has been crafting. And he wants to use your passions and your gifts and your brokenness to say, 
What does it look like for you to show up in Huntington Beach? And I don't know if that's in your neighborhoods. I don't know if that's in neighborhoods where the people are less fortunate to you. I don't know if that's with addictions or brokenness or divorce, whatever situation that is. We are a church that can't just sit by and just watch the world be broken. God has redeemed us to be redeemers. He's restored us to be restorers. He's rescued us to rescue those that are broken. That's who we are, and that's who we get to be. One of the things that we're going to do right now is we talked about taking an offering. Kevin talked about taking a second offering. And this is an offering that we just want, uh, this goes strictly to uh, outreach ministries in Huntington Beach. This is you guys. This is your identity. You guys will go as far as you want to take your church of who you want to be. And this isn't your regular tithe. This is on top of your normal tithe. And we did that so that we could go, hey, we want to respond, not just because we just want to give and we want to give the 10%. We want to respond and say, how do we become generous people that has a heart where we can not only show up personally, but we're going to show up and we're going to give. One of the things that God has taught me in all of that is three years ago I mentioned my story of divorce and brokenness. And there were days, and this is going to be emotional for me too, when all I had was $50 in my checking account. And I had to make choices between, am I going to put food for my kids? Am I going to buy them new clothes? What am I going to do with that? But one thing God said, he said, you know what? I am, you are mine. And I want you, the resources I've given you, they're mine. Will you just trust me and will you just give? And I made a commitment in that moment of desperation to say, this is who I want to be. This is what this wristband means is that I'm going to be this kind of follower of Jesus Christ. And I began to tithe whatever I had. And God blessed that like you wouldn't have believed. And so this isn't just, hey, we want your money. This, isn't, this, this is about you and where you're at with God. This is a spiritual response to say, okay, where am I at? Where am I at? How am I going to be all in? How am I going to give, be a part of what God is doing in Huntington Beach? And so as the band comes out, Here's what I want you guys to do. They're going to give you a chance just to respond and process for you. What does it mean for you just to show up? What does it mean for the one that's in your life or in your neighborhood or your community? Who is that one that God is calling you to be? And oftentimes with our resources that God has given us, sometimes it's about saying, hey, I'm going to take what God has given me and I'm just going to give it. I'm going to trust him in this. And so this is a chance for you to wrestle with. How do you want to respond? Who do you want to be? And so I'm going to pray for the offering. And again, this is, this, is, this is an offering for you guys and for Huntington Beach. What kind of church do you want to be in this area? So let me just pray. Lord, we come before you. And I thank you for um, just all that you're doing in this community. Just what an incredible light and what an incredible resource this church is, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for each and every person that's here today as they have stories, as they are broken, as they are messed up, as they have gifts and they have passions. Lord, I pray that you have been crafting their story for such a time as this. Lord, that you have placed people in their neighborhoods, in their communities, uh, that you need them to be Jesus too. And Lord, I pray that you just remove all the obstacles, that you just um, give them clarity on who is the one that you give them clarity on who they need to be. Lord, that you give them clarity on how they need to surrender all that they have to be a part of glorifying you, Lord. 
Lord, let this be a moment that you just speak to our hearts. Let this be a moment that you just show up and that you remind us that our response is not because we have to. Our response is because it's the only response for what you've done for us. That we want to be who you are. Lord, we thank you again for this church. Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do in this community. Lord, I thank you for who you're calling them to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.